<laughs> that was only one bark, though. That was very restrained. That was so <laughs> restrained for Casper. Podcast time. Okay. Uh, welcome to Total Recall, the podcast where we reread the Tamara Pierce books and have feelings about them and yell about them. Um, this time we'll be talking or continuing our discussion of the second book in the Immortal series, uh, Wolf Speaker. Did we say that and last time? Probably not. I don't. No. <laughs> <laughs> That's about oh, par for the course with us. <laughs> oh. So I guess let's do introductions, and we talked about um, doing some more follow-up favorite animal names, and I'll go last this time, because I know I got to go first last time and pick my favorite first, <laughs> so um, I'll let you guys go first. Uh, I'll go, because I didn't look, so I only have one, <laughs> um, but I'm Shelby, my pronouns are she, her, and my extra favorite uh, animal name for this was Blueness, just because that description of how he got it was great. Shelby, I had the same one. It's okay. I have I have extra commentary. Me but too. Yes, good choice. <laughs> great minds, nice. you know. <laughs> uh, well, Rudy, you want to go next then? I just yes. said your name. Um, <laughs> well, I'm Aurora. My pronouns are she, her. Um, and Blueness is also one of my fave animal names. Um, <laughs> both because of the story and not that they just, they didn't decide to call him blue, like the color. No, no, no. They called <laughs> him blueness. So this reaches farther than just being like, yeah, he's blue. No, no, no. If it's blueness, that means that blue is his essence. He is the quality of being blue. Uh, that's it's nice. just quite delightful. Um, anyway. <laughs> I also just want to shout out the fact that Blueness refers to himself as having noble bulk because that's really important to uh, me. Love it. <laughs> what a good cat. Really good cat. Both the cats are good. Mm. Um, well, I'm Abby. My pronouns are she, her. And my additional favorite animal name is Wisewing the bat, especially mm. because she's very not wise. <laughs> She's really, like, she decides to land on a hurric because she's curious about it. Well, and because she knows they're too slow. Owls now. Yeah, owls are the real danger, so maybe that is wisdom for a bat. But anyway, I like her a lot. Uh, My name's Kelly, my pronouns are she, her, and Blueness was also one of my favorite names for the above reasons, but um, I have another one, and mine is also a bat name, and it's one of the bats that she just, like, mentioned in passing, and it's Moth Eater, just because I think that that's a really lame name to be sad about. <laughs> yeah, I read, when I read that, I definitely thought, like, don't they all eat moths? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Like, like, now you are defined by something that everybody in your species eats. Good for you. <laughs> like, are you just super gluttonous? I don't know. Um... Oh, I had one more amazing, amazing Kelly discovery that I wanted to share with you guys, which is when I was reading the front material of this book, um, I saw that it was a Jean Carl book, and then I looked that person up, and she's a book editor specializing in children's sci-fi, um, and 
She founded and led the children's division and young adult science fiction like division of Athenium Books, and she was also the editor for um, a lot of the Ursula Le Guin Ursi series. Whoa, books. cool! And she was the editor for these Tamora Pierce books, and she is the editor for um, the mixed up files of Miss Basil Eek. <laughs> nice. nice. So I love her now. She edited a whole bunch of my favorite books. And I'm happy that like Ursula Le Guin and Tamara Pierce are like secretly somehow tied together. Yeah, that's good. I it love blows my mind. Ursula Le Guin so much, <laughs> the most. Uh, okay, let us move to social justice corner. Um, and I know that Shelby, you had something that you wanted to talk about. Restore wings. Yeah. So I find like the idea. So the storm wings are pretty clearly a whole throughout. <laughs> The last book and future books, this metaphor about tolerance and acceptance. And so I thought it would be good to talk a little bit more about that metaphor and what she's trying to do and whether it's working. Um, so there were kind of, when I'm trying to fit this into like my own previous and current understanding of how these metaphors kind of work, I always think about like two different kinds of tolerance stories that we get in especially children's literature, um, although all kinds of, of literature. So there are the specific ones, which are, you know, stories where um, it's very clearly about people should not be mean to queer people, to black people, to a very specific group that is oppressed in our society. And then there are the non-specific ones, um, which are more about like, generally don't be mean to people who are different and the difference can be very non-specific or very specific in a way that is just in no way reflective of our world um and so i think these metaphors both have their place um well the first is not a metaphor but um i think these stories both have their place um in that i mean and, and, but I think there is sometimes, at least in how people read them, like a tension between them and whether um, we're getting enough of either kind or whether one is kind of, I've had a thought about how this was connecting <laughs> and then I forgot it. Um, so, so I guess what I was trying to say is that, you know, the specific ones are super necessary um, because those are the actual forms of prejudice and the actual forms of bias that we are likely to have internalized that we need to deal with within our own world. Um, but I personally think the second one's also super important um, because it allows for internalizing that value even in ways where it's not yet fully realized in our world. So there are lots of forms of difference that we haven't yet had a civil rights campaign about. And while I do think, you know, the ones that we have so far, we already have for a reason. They're often the biggest and the most obvious. Um, there's always more. There's always more ways that we are being mean to each other. Um, and those non-specific stories are important for us to, to learn about that value for the, for the specific forms that we already know about and also for the kind of ideas that we haven't yet figured out. Are, are things we should be more accepting of. And so you mm -hmm. would place the Stormwings in, like, the, the latter category, right? 
So actually, I'm saying more, I'm, so the reason I was bringing this up is more because I'm kind of curious whether the Stormwings fit well in that category, or whether they are trying to be a more blatant metaphor for race, or for some other mm. dimension of difference. Um, right, so I guess I want to just clarify something, which is, um, you've laid out two categories here, one where there's a story specifically about how like, racism is bad, and then one that's more a general metaphor about how, like, oppression is bad. Um, but within the former category, there's examples in fantasy and sci-fi especially, um, you know, you can do that in a story where you have actual, like, if it's race, actual people of color, or you can do a metaphor about, you know, how there are blue ogres that experience oppression, uh -huh. but there are no people of color in this book, you know? Right. Exactly. And that can often be a big problem. And so, yeah, so one of my questions is kind of like, is this just a story about tolerance that also has its place, even though it's not specific to maybe any of the specific forms of bias that we exhibit in our world? Or is it trying to be a metaphor? And if so, is it doing it badly? Also, I just want to clarify that I wasn't saying necessarily that there are no people of color in this specific book, <laughs> okay, okay. although there are, are blue ogres. I was like, <laughs> yeah, wait, just want to. <laughs> 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 yeah, well, I imagine we'll talk about that in a bit. Yeah. Um, I'm always ready. <laughs> I guess I've been sort of reading it sort of, I mean, I know she particularly uses Stormwings as like the focal example, like, like Dana's extra against Stormwings out of all immortals. Um, but I'd been sort of reading it as a sort of general story about, like, prejudice and acceptance, especially because there are, like, multiple groups of immortals that sort of Dane considers this issue for, like you said. Like, she thinks about it for the Stormwings and also for the Ogres. Yeah. Although for, for most of the other groups, either she sees them as, like, sentient and a type of people who are maybe different from humans but, like, still people, or she sees them as more animals slash monsters. Stormings are the only ones where she's like, yes, they're sentient, and they clearly have, like, thoughts and feelings, but also they are inherently evil, and I want to kill them all, you know? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think yeah. I definitely lean towards thinking it's more of a, a non-specific metaphor. Um, the other thing that I find interesting about it as a metaphor is the degree to which they are kind of viscerally off-putting to yeah. humans and are designed yeah. to be, um, which the design part is a whole nother deal. Um, but I find that a very interesting part of their role in the story because the implication is very much, like, it's not just about, like, you know, as I think Abby put this to me at one point when we were having a different discussion about these two categories of stories. Um, it's not just about being nice to the, you know, cis white child in the corner, um, which is partially about specific biases and partially about you need, we need to be teaching acceptance not just of the things that are easy to accept. Um, and while obviously, like, smelling like dead bodies is different from... And desecrating the, corpses. And desecrating corpses is very different from, you know, like, all of the dimensions of difference that 
that we're categorizing in the first thing. Um, I do think uh, it's interesting that she puts into this metaphor acceptance of something that is so distinctly difficult for Dane to accept. Mm-hmm. Right, so to elaborate on the, the white cis child in the corner comment, that's specifically in the context of, like, anti-bullying messages that are about, you know, we just shouldn't be mean to people, but don't address the fact that, like, we're often specifically bullying people who are different from us in some way, and we use that to justify the bullying. So if your anti-bullying message doesn't acknowledge that, then it's basically useless. Yeah, I also think that this metaphor, like, to me is a little bit complicated, because, like, everybody... It's telling Dane in this book, like, listen, Dane, these particular storm wings haven't hurt you. You can't just shoot them. But on the other hand, while they haven't hurt her yet, like, a whole bunch of them are hunting for her to That is her. true. So that complicates it a little <laughs> so, bit. <laughs> it's, like, it's, like, a little bit complicated by that. Although I, I, I appreciate that, like, the metaphor still works. But I also think that it's interesting that she complicated that much. Like, a whole bunch of these storm wings are very much like, we want to kill you. And everybody's like, Dane, they're not evil. Accept them. Well, they're not necessarily inherently evil, but they do want to kill her. <laughs> yeah. Although, right, I mean, like, it, you know, there is something to be said for the fact that, like, you know, I don't know. Like, I I don't know. I, I guess there's, there's something really weird about the fact that, like, she initially, like, she she makes some comment at some point about, like, can, can I really accept Stormwings after I've been, like, hunted by them for so long or whatever and it's been a year i think we established in the last episode Mm -hmm. (laughs) since she like first encountered a stormwing so like you know i i guess it's pretty fast to be you know be attacked by one group of stormwings and then be like all stormwings are 100 percent evil 100% 100% of the time. Right. Yeah. I mean, I would argue that both we and Dane should be extremely cautious of assuming that all Stormwings are in the group that's trying to kill her. Right. Arguably, that may actually be true <laughs> in this case, because they were deliberately brought out of the Divine Realms uh, to as part of this alliance with somebody who is trying to kill her. Um <laughs> yeah, but plenty of people have been brought out for right. that. And basically I'm saying you should never assume an entire species is trying to kill you because some group of that species is trying to kill you. It's generally an overgeneralization. <laughs> right, which is what we learn in this book when some of them don't want to kill her as much. <laughs> so, as yeah, much. I did, <laughs> they wouldn't mind, I found, though. going off what you said earlier about how fast she, like, you know, it's been a year and she hates Stormwings with all of her being... Um, reading Mm -hmm. this at least now, I found the handling of her journey through this a little heavy handed. (laughs) (laughs) As in how it like takes place over like three days. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Like I understand that she's 14 and that these books are perhaps, you know, they are written for, uh, you know, not an old audience. Um, but it just, it was so overt the way they talked about it. She's like, oh, I hate them. And everyone's like, no, 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 you've got to give them a chance. She's like, oh, I still hate them. Yeah. Um. <laughs> well, and also, as you noted, everyone else is like, no, we need to be more reasonable about this. That's generally how these kinds of things go. Exactly. Yeah. Like, you would think that, at least in this world, a lot of other people would share her opinions about Stormwings, given what they do at a wider level in Tortal. 
Like, even Numer. Well, I guess Numer may have... He had no contact <laughs> with him before, either. He is... Yeah, but I feel like Numer yeah. might be inclined to be more open-minded, because he's a weirdo. <laughs> That's um, true. <laughs> <laughs> but, right, I mean, you'd think that, like, the random townspeople and stuff would be more opposed to these creatures that, again, do like, live off human suffering and desecrate corpses. I mean, we don't know <laughs> which that Which makes them kind of hard to get along with. We're not sure that the random townspeople aren't, like, are or aren't opposed to them, because we hear very little from these random townspeople, which is an odd hole in this story. That's true. Um, I mean, yeah, I guess we, we don't explicitly get their opinions one way or the other, but that means that the only opinions we do get are the people who are like, no, Stormwings are totally fine. What's mm-hmm. bad is wolves. <laughs> mm. <laughs> like, that's the other weird flip side to this oppression metaphor, is that, like, Dane meets a bunch of people who tell her to be more open-minded to Stormwings and also experiences, I guess, a form of prejudice which is equated, which is how other people feel uncomfortable towards wolves. <laughs> <laughs> I mean... I think their discomfort is mostly out of fear, but it's an odd parallel to draw. Right. I mean, especially because, like, I I think it is part of the prejudice metaphor because Dane keeps telling people, like, uh, you know, I'm, like, wolves don't eat you, they're not gonna (laughs) hurt you unless you, like, attack them first, you're just being mean, you know, the wolves are totally fine, they're just trying to live their lives. Uh, and the, you know, uh, Mara especially has, like, a whole, like, arc of learning to like the wolves. So, I don't know, it's- it... At least the ones who aren't bullying her. Yeah. Um, which, yeah, I, I don't know, I'm right, I guess that that's also part of this lesson about not assuming things about people who are different from you, which is weird. <laughs> I mean, it's just because, I suppose it's because it, uh, was intended to be painted very broadly, and so they didn't want it just to apply to Stormwings or Ogres, and had to extend it to other domains, I guess, including animals. Wasn't there a thing about bats that was similar? Like, was it in this book that was more afraid of the bats, like, getting in her hair? Yeah, they had that. Yeah, was like, they don't land in your hair. (laughs) So it's, like, blanket uh. tolerance. <laughs> yeah. Which is not a bad message to teach. Yeah. No. Um, one other thing that I kind of want to get back to slightly is, because um, I'm not sure I said it well before, um, was this idea that, like, most of the dimensions of difference that we actually experience and have to deal with... Um, in our world are pretty small in the actual difference involved, right? Like, and that's often a big part of, um, like, acceptance stories in our world is, like, maybe these things are not so different after all. Whereas Stormwings are, like, actually very different in ways that are, like, obviously unpleasant and arguably just, like, in direct opposition to humans. Um, and so that's interesting in a couple ways. It's been argued to be very dangerous in the case of kind of like the the kind of what I've heard referred to as the mutant metaphor, what you were talking about earlier with mm-hmm. like metaphors about um, 
like sci-fi or fantasy races who are in fact extremely different from the humans. Um, but I think it's also important. Um, and I wanted specifically to point to this really fascinating um, Tumblr post that N.K. Jemison wrote, um, which I think we can link somehow um, mm -hmm. on social media or some such, um, which she wrote about her Broken Earth trilogy, um, which if anyone hasn't read it and has a tolerance for very dark fantasy, I highly recommend it. I can't actually finish it, but I love her other her other works are amazing as well, if you want something yeah, a little bit Jones lighter. Yeah, great. Um, and she specifically talked about that mutant metaphor and how, yeah, it is dangerous um, to make these metaphors say specifically about race, for the most part, in her works, um, that indicate that there is substantial difference, but that at the same time, acknowledge that it's equally important to send the message that these forms of oppression are not ju justifiable even in the presence of difference. Um, and so mm -hmm. um, stories that interrogate that question are equally important, um, provided they interrogate it well. Um, so, uh, I don't know if I should read it from here if we should just link it but um maybe we should link it because yeah. we've been talking about prejudice for almost half an hour so it might be good to move on to the rest of social justice i guess i did want to bring up one other thing about Stormwings, just when we're talking about like what kind of oppression metaphor they are which is that we we get an indication that they are racially diverse Mm. Which is a yeah. thing that yeah. oh, that's true, explicitly cause... sort of distances it from being a race metaphor. Yeah, which I think was probably a wise and and also yeah. just like good like world building thing. How often do you get like fantasy races that seem to just universally be white? Right. No, I mean I I definitely agree that like it's it's good and interesting to have like, skin color differences and stuff within the group of Stormwings. It does raise a lot of questions that Dane refers to one specifically as a Kamiri Stormwing, because as far as we know, mm -hmm. the Kamir are, like, a specific ethnicity with a specific culture, and, like, is the Stormwing mm -hmm. part of that, or did they just kind of look like a Kamir person? Yeah, I could definitely see that being, Dane does not have that much experience with people from that part of the world, except for the three Kamiri people she knows. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Right, well, and they, like, you know, if they're, like, you know, I don't know, South or Central Asian or something like that, you know, they can't say Asia in this book, so how right. else are they going to indicate that? Spiced grains. Spiced cereal. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Actually, that's um, a fascinating uh, little world-building note. We don't have any words for region in this world. Like race, we know a or... lot. No, well, region words. Like we know a lot of different countries, including ones from relatively distant places. But we have yet to encounter a word like, you know, Europe. Yeah. Well, I mean, the weird thing is that it's a bunch of countries. Like, you know, it's just like Japan and Egypt and whatever <laughs> sort of vaguely European thing Tortal is, and like Vikings, and they're all just like directly <laughs> adjacent to each other. I mean, there's a chance that so they... there's not. Yeah, they don't have like a big world for a big word for like Europe because 
they don't have the technology to like travel that far or like one, their trade routes countries. don't go that far like maps don't <laughs> extend that far I'd, well, like, it's... maybe they don't need a point of reference yeah. that's quite that uh all like widely encompassing well abby and i have a minor running debate on how big tortal and the other countries are so that may also explain some of our yeah. disagreement here but we can move on <laughs> Let's move on. Could I actually, I had something that kind of connects to what we were talking about regarding the immortals and kind of where they fall. Like, are we, is this some sort of like race distinction we're talking about or something else? Um, And so it's actually kind of like a technical legal question about Tortal um, and the ogres. So we know that in Dunleth, Dunleth, the valley, um, the ogres are Seems enslaved, um, but we also know that this is technic. This is illegal in um, Tortal at large, right? Well, mm-hmm. yes. it's illegal to have like human slavery in Tortal. So I was wondering if there are actually, mm-hmm. given that the immortals are new to um, the region, whether there are like wider rules concerning their rights or like the rights of non-humans. Yeah, I would say it seems pretty clear that there has not been a test case yet. Sure. The legal system has not yet found a place for ogres. And I think this is pretty, like, distinctly, like, not directly addressed, but it's kind of referenced when I think it's Mora at some point says, like, I don't like it. We're not, we're not a country that has slavery. So clearly Mora thinks it looks like this is slavery and illegal. Right. But I think it's also clear that that would be a legal thing that would have to actually be established. Yeah. I mean, I don't know. Not we not guaranteed. They probably did have laws about immortals from, like, the time hundreds of years ago when immortals were around, but, I mean, it's unlikely that that, like, the, uh, you know, the social codes and stuff would still hold up across that time period, so it is something I think they have to figure out now. I mean, I think, like, I don't think that the the ogre and also maybe human slavery that's happening in Dunleth is you know, legal and above board in Tortal mm-hmm. because they're doing it entirely illegally. You know, I mean, they're doing also it without... to commit treason. Right. So, <laughs> yeah, it's part of their treasonous plot and, like, the government doesn't know about it. So, right. I don't think we can say, like, this is a legal precedent where it's kind of okay to enslave ogres in Tortal because I don't think it is. But, um, yeah, I, I think we don't know. Although that does raise other fascinating questions about, like, this is a feudal society and, like, what are their rights free, like, even living here? Yeah, okay, uh, I mean, I have a lot of questions about that also <laughs> that I want to bring up. Same! But, um... <laughs> but, yeah, I mean, so I guess, like, I, I wanted to lay something out there about the ogres, which is that, um, unlike the Stormwings, which I think are more sort of, or less specifically tied to race, I feel like the ogres are very tied to race. Mm. Um, and mm-hmm. partially mm-hmm. because they have... Um, a different skin color, um, apparently consistently, I guess all ogres have, like, bluish skin, um, and also, uh, they, I don't know, their narrative kind of struck me as, like, very much, uh, a, like, immigrant indentured servitude kind of thing that, you know, mirrors real-world history where, like, they were told that they would have you know, this opportunity to farm if they traveled to this new land, and then, like, once they traveled there and had, you know, no resources or, like, support structure, mm-hmm. they were super exploited for mining mm-hmm. purposes. 
Um, so yeah, I mean, I think that's a, a much more explicitly relevant to race sort of storyline. And within that, I also thought it was interesting that ogres are the only group of immortals that speak in broken English. Mm. Yeah. Specifically, one time, uh, the main one, I her name is like, I something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, she says, our color different from men color. And that was just very awkward, in my opinion. <laughs> I was, well, well, they're fairly new to, like, the human realms, right? So I was wondering, so if ogres have their own, like, ogre language, then they're new enough that they're just picking up common or whatever is being spoken in Tortal, such that... See... But it's weird that the Stormwings, you know... Right, that it's weird it's not that the it's just them. them. It's weird that it's just them, and also, if that were true, this would be a terrible way of writing that. Oh, well, Because yeah. what this does is pretty much, like, emphasize the, like, they don't speak and therefore seem very stupid, which is a thing that we have regularly done to every non-English-speaking group of people that comes here mm. and continue to do to this day, is say, they can't speak good English, therefore they stupid. Uh, so, yeah. Right, I mean, yeah, so, so in that way it does, like, fit into an immigrant discrimination narrative, but not in a way that, like, <laughs> counters it at no. all. Right. Mm-hmm. Well, I feel like we're sort of transitioning into race so should we just make that transition yeah probably (laughs) more race things that you guys want to talk about i did want to talk about uh numer a little bit i'm always okay Okay, cool (laughs) well mostly i think that um the like the physical descriptions we get about numer are a lot like the physical descriptions that we get of alex in the previous series in that he has um you know dark hair and dark eyes and his face is referred to as being dark and stuff but there's nothing as explicit as say you know with the Khmer or with Sarge where they're like this is obviously a person of color you know there's nothing that explicit they just refer to him as dark a lot so I don't you know like I think it's very easy to read Numer as not white or as um coded kind of you know Semitic or something which is something we've talked about Mm -hmm. um but it's super not explicit. Yeah. I mean, also, other point of evidence there is he comes from fantasy Egypt, which we have mentioned. He doesn't come from fantasy <laughs> Egypt. Stu- no, he studied there, but yeah. he's not from Carthage. Where is he from? Do we know? Wait, Tyra? I thought he was from fantasy Egypt. Oh. Huh. Really? Wait, where is he I from? I just always assumed he was from I, th- I think Carter. he's from Tyra, but I don't know. And none of us have read the Numer books, so, like, don't take any of this as gospel. <laughs> no, I wanted to be from fantasy Egypt. This is everything. <laughs> I, th- I mean, it. I, I realized that one Oh, no, of, go ahead. Oh, sorry. Go ahead, Aurora. I guess I was just going to say, I realized, I think one of the reasons that I maybe always coded him as non-white, in this book, he's referred to, like, as several times as being in a brown study. So I thought she was, like, literally, like, saying, like, he is brown. But I looked up brown study, and apparently it just means, like, he's being absent. Oh, yeah, that's just, like, a weird, obscure thing. That's not a reference to his appearance. Um... Yeah, so I mean, I, I guess that's how you read him, not the, how he's coded. Those are, like, different things. Um, Sorry, Aurora, go ahead. Oh, I was just going to say, uh, yeah, Aurora, I don't think, you... yeah, I think his name, 
or his original name, Aram Draper? It's not Karthaki, yeah. though, I mean, not that I know that much about the etymology of names in this world. Um, <laughs> but. Yeah, I mean, without knowing about his actual childhood, which I assume that there is canon about that we just don't know, mm-hmm. um, <laughs> I. My my understanding is that for, he's from a country that is not Karthak and is also not Tortal, and we don't really know much about it or the people who live there. So mm-hmm. there's that's not much to go on. Yeah. And here, a reminder for everyone that none of us have read the new Mare books. Yeah. We don't need to be spoiled on them. Not even, it's not just Amy this time. We all would like not to be spoiled. Yeah. We, we do want to read them in the future, and we, don't, we would rather not get spoilers in advance. Thank you. Thank you. Um... Uh, yeah, so, I mean, I think an, an interesting thing about Numer is, um, you know, I, I think he's, uh, coded as, like, a, probably a different ethnicity from most people in Tortal, mm-hmm. although I don't know if we can get more specific than that. I definitely read him as non-white, but it, it's hard to tell, um, but, uh, or it's hard to you know, explicitly say that that is canon, I guess. But I think an interesting thing about Dane and Numer is that um, they're both, neither of them are from Tortal, and, like, this doesn't really come up a lot, I guess. Like, the, the um, both Dane and Numer are foreigners from other countries, and Dane also we could talk about, I don't know, I don't remember if you guys talked about Dane's race, but I, I think we could talk about that. Um, but... Right, it seems like Numer has no trouble, like, just being part of Tortal society, or if he does, any sort of, like, difference he has from other Tortalans is, like, not addressed at all in the narrative. Which is also true of Alex, which, you know, I think there's a strong case to be made that Tortal is, like, fairly racially diverse, and there are just, like, these, you know, minority ethnicities that are part of it that don't, like, get a lot of exploration. It's also very easy to believe that the other privileges that both Numer and Alex had as yeah. nobles and or the most powerful of the world <laughs> Those. Um, right, like, <laughs> may have them insulated them to the point where we don't actually see the prejudice that they may still be experiencing. Mm-hmm. Neither of them, you know, being POV characters. Right. And, yeah, especially given that, um, you know, right, Alana and Dane, respectively, have fairly different, you know, backgrounds and outlooks. That could just be a thing that we don't see uh, because they don't know enough about, you know, Alex and Numer's, like, inner lives. (laughs) (laughs) Abby, you mentioned Dane's race, and I know that that actually isn't something we've talked about, and I know that some people do talk a lot about it, so maybe we should bring that up now on on this, the second book. I'm excited to talk about that. Um, I think there's some stuff that we might want to save from the spoiler section, given that we don't know who her dad is. (laughs) Well. But what we do know as of, I think Wild Magic, but one of the two books that I have read recently, Mm -hmm. is that um, the people of the village that Dane was from were... Um, mostly sort of, like, blonde, blue-eyed, Nordic-looking, uh, but that she distinctly did not look like them, and it was a problem. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I find that really interesting because, um, I mean, you could read it as her dad as POC, and, and, it, and 
she is distinctly non-white. I think you can also just read it as we have a tendency to think about racial categories as we think about them in America, but they are very, very contextual. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. And in a village where everyone is blonde, not being blonde may be enough to experience a different kind of racism from other kinds of racism, but a form of racism nonetheless. Right, no, I mean, I, I, yeah, I wouldn't say that she's explicitly coded as a person of color or a character of color or whatever, Mm -hmm. um, just by virtue of looking different from the blonde, blue-eyed people. But I think, um, I mean, what we know about her appearance is that she has brown, curly hair and, like, gray eyes. Gray, blue eyes. Um, and I think that's it. And I, I think beyond that, it almost doesn't really matter whether you read her as a person of color or not, because she does, regardless, have this experience of um, being looking very different from the people that were the majority of the population where she grew up. So I think that's interesting. Mm-hmm. And also, um, the f- just the fact that she... Uh, you know, what I, we get no real indication, I think, that she looks like the average Tortallin. And the fact that she is, you know, not an old Tortall family like most of our protagonists <laughs> are, um, but, you know, a commoner from a different country, mm-hmm. uh, I think definitely makes her a, an easy sort of route into, um, like, intentionally reading people in the um, in Tortall as, or in this universe as not white, because, you know, mm-hmm. like... Uh, given Alana's sort of, like, description and Tortal's description and stuff, it's a bit harder to, um, you know, consciously or unconsciously interpret her as, um, a person of color, but, like, if you're looking for ways that people of color fit into this world, I think there's no evidence that Dane is not Mm -hmm. a person of color. That seems reasonable. Okay, I want to talk about feminism. (laughs) (laughs) Alright, let's talk about feminism and queer stuff. Let's start there. Okay, so um, I have a couple things about feminism. One is uh, just sort of largely as an aside. Um, uh, there's a scene where Dane super doesn't want to wear a very pink feminine dress, uh-huh. and Numer makes her do it. Ugh. And like, I don't know. That's it's an interesting contrast, I guess, to Alana's storyline, which was, like, you know, that she was, um, she was comfortable, like, doing masculine stuff and, and presenting as masculine, but she was also, you know, largely excited to explore her femininity when she had the option to do that, and here's a situation where, like, Dane has, like, a, you know, isn't, where Dane, who is not, you know, spending most of her time in a, being read as masculine is asked to conform to like more specifically feminine gender roles and she doesn't want to do it but she has to anyway um mm-hmm. and i don't know i just thought that was interesting mm-hmm. yeah i thought i thought it was interesting too especially with like i feel like we've talked about before like there being like more sort of pushback in these books against like being traditionally feminine being bad and i don't think that's necessarily what dane's saying but i sort of got that vibe again from her being like, oh, gross, dresses, gross. <laughs> Not quite, but... I guess there's two sort of, like, things going on here. One is that um, 
Dane is like less comfortable with overtly feminine stuff and that's um like a to you know it's a totally good and reasonable way to be that she's not com comfortable with feminine stuff and in this particular case it doesn't come with too much judgment of people who do like that stuff um but I mean also I guess it's notable that uh even though she doesn't like feminine stuff she still has to comply with this gender role in this situation. Yeah. I think it just means that in this particular instance, like, I'm guessing that kind of the wider social norms, like, things might be changing kind of not evenly across all of Tortal. Um, and so to call less attention to themselves, at least in this situation, um, they would want to conform with something considered, like, more traditional, while perhaps things are different and, you know, moving at a different pace in the city. Yeah. Yeah, I guess, um, Alana, Alana has the, uh, ability to, you know, attend formal uh, gatherings in pants, but mm. I kind of think that she, you know, she's a very unique case and she has a lot of power and privilege, so it's not necessarily true that that's a part of a broader change. Well, except that... You know, Dane is also invited to wear pants as soon as she gets to the riders, and it's clear that there's a lot... Not in formal situations, though. Not necessarily in formal situations. My point is, that itself is a move. And yeah. so it may not be moving as quickly as would be ideal, but I think saying this small and treasonous backwater is a particularly good <laughs> representation of whether Tortal as a whole is moving is pretty unlikely. I mean, you have to consider they're almost undercover here. Like, that's in part yeah. how I read that is, like... Like, I mean... You can have other conversations about whether it's reasonable to regulate someone else's gender expression in general, but I do think I've read that as to some degree. Like, we are on a mission from the king and our goal wait, wait, is wait. to figure out whether treason is happening. I need to say something about this because they do the worst job of being undercover in the entire world. Because literally, like, Numer is like, by the way, I'm also Numer, and everybody knows who he is. Like, didn't you think about maybe a disguise or something? <laughs> and Dane literally is like, hmm, what's the secret magical power that I have that nobody knows about? Let me just announce it to everybody. Right, and then, <laughs> then even beyond that, you know, she gives a message from the wolves of, and, like, you know, yeah. gives a warning of, like, they will try to stop you if you keep doing this. We know what you're up to. The wolves know, and they will try to stop you. And then they, like, kind of laugh it off, and then Numer's like, no, you don't know these wolves. Like, they're not regular wolves. So, like, they're just kind of, like, laying all their cards down on the table right away. Isn't like, Numer a spy? The is this is is so kind bad? of justified in the end by Numer being like, oh, it's fine. They think I'm useless, so <laughs> announcing that I'm the most powerful wizard isn't a problem because they think I'm like not actually that great at practical. I just, there. I've been thinking, I've just been thinking about them the whole time. <laughs> they are the yeah. worst spies. They are bad spies. Um, I guess, I guess one thing that one thing that like, I agree that I sort of feel like, yes, like the reason that Dane has to do this is because like this is a perhaps particularly conservative, like, part of Tortle, and they're trying not to draw attention to themselves. But I feel like one of the reasons why that sort of, like, stood out so strongly for me is there are basically, like, three main female characters in this book, right? There's Dane, there's Mora, and mm -hmm. there's Yolaine. And Yolaine is evil, yet she is, like, the most very, like, overtly mm -hmm. super feminine in her behavior and her presentation. Uh-huh. Yeah, I, that's something else that I wanted to talk about, actually, is that I, th I feel like Yolaine is very much in the same vein as... Um, 
Delia and Josie Ann from the mm-hmm. previous series of, like, mm-hmm. these villains who are uh, very, very feminine, much more so than the main character, very focused on, like, romance. They're part of the evil plot, but they're not in charge of it, and, like, they're maybe sort of being manipulated, mm-hmm. like, sexually, but they're also just, like, very sort of evil mm-hmm. and self-centered, and, it, you know, it it's... We we don't have any female villains so far that don't fit that archetype. Like, for example, any female villains who are powerful. Yeah, any any female villains who have mm-hmm. power outside of their sexuality. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah, and it, it just bothers me that, like, the most, like, feminine presenting people are the ones that are evil. And, like, part of, like, what seems, like, evil about them is their, like, attraction to their, like, their care mm-hmm. to their own appearance is, like coded as vanity which is just like more proof yeah that they like are evil. she makes a very like a point of talking about how uh it looks like mora goes outside and has freckles and elaine of course doesn't and takes time to keep her skin like ivory or whatever i guess the the freckles thing really reminded me of the thing from the previous book where dane you know shook hands with all these nobles and was like oh they're good people because they have calluses so they like really work <laughs> which you know i that's very much a class mm-hmm. thing and that's uh you know, I, I, like, get that, but, um, you know, you know, I guess I'm torn here between I agree that nobles who, who, like, just, like, live off the land, what, you know, live off their, their subordinates, whatever, don't do work, like, I, I'm against those people, but then it's very much sort of the same type of thing where it's like, oh, yeah, I guess, like, the, the difference between Thayet and Yolaine, even though they're both very feminine, is that Thayet, like, has calluses and like clearly goes outside and like does things whereas Yolaine is implied not to but I don't know like the idea that you can't that nothing you do is good or relevant unless it gives you calluses and freckles (laughs) yeah I feel like that's something that I've also seen um come up with a bit with like Numir when he talks about like his academic training and then he was like that was all useless like I came here and I learned how to be like practical like, this book, like, these books place a lot of emphasis on, like, very, like, practical work, like, outside work. Yeah, right, and so, I mean, it is kind of aligning practical and useful with outdoorsy and masculine, I guess. And those mm-hmm. seem like things that could be separated out. Right, and it's kind of funny, especially in, like, you know, one of the things I like about these books overall is that often the actual straight-up fighting it's only one part, and I mean, this is partially a romantic fantasy thing, I think, but, like, it's also always about, like, okay, like, you know, coalition building, and who are your allies, and these things that actually, like, you know, don't involve the manual labor part that have always interested me about these books, but, like, it does seem to imply, oh, but it's only, you can only do those things if also you fight, and, like, no? Mm. Diplomats Mm -hmm. can just be diplomats, like, they don't have to fight. To right. accomplish things that are helpful to the other people around them. Right. Politics mm-hmm. are a big part of these books, but your con- contributions to politics are only considered worthwhile if they happen in this very, like, masculine space of, like, oh, yeah, we're outside, we're riding. You know, if mm-hmm. you're uh, a Delia or a Yolaine who wants to be involved in politics inside, <laughs> that's not mm-hmm. okay. You know, I want to agree with the sort of message about um, nobility only being, I guess, valuable if they actually 
do something with their power, but I think we could, mm-hmm. you know, there are ways to do that where that are not just like I guess the physical power of your body, uh-huh. and we don't see that at yeah. all. I mean, I think this will develop a little in a better direction, perhaps in a quartet of the future. I don't know. Maybe. <laughs> we'll just have to Maybe. wait and see. Won't we? <laughs> but yeah, I guess also I in that vein, I'm I can't think of a female villain that we get in, in the future in this universe that does not conform to the standard of like being evil but only in a way that means they're sexually available to the main villains who are the male villains. I'm not sure I can think of one in Tortal. I think I might be able to think of one in Emelon. I can think of one in Emelon, but that's outside yeah. of the purview of the series currently. <laughs> yes. Um, is there, do we have more stuff to discuss about feminism, or should we make this transition towards more class? Um, I guess let's go towards class. Sure. Yeah, let's just slide on over to class. Um, I have a lot of questions. <laughs> yeah. About. Yeah, let's ask, yeah, ask I mean, them. I think a lot of this we might be able to extract from the text, but just to, like, confirm, um, I have some questions about how Tortolan society in general is structured, especially in, like, the more rural areas, because it looks like things are a bit different in kind of your urban centers, like in Chorus. Um, but, so how exactly, A, how does the relationship between nobles and the people on their land work? So is this, like, it feels like a kind of feudal system, yeah? Where people who live in the land are kind of taxed in some way, maybe, like, provide cops and cops, haha, crops and income to the nobles, and the nobles protect them with their military? Um, or, like, what's the deal? I have a lot of questions about the military of Tortal, which is related to this. Um, so, right, I, yeah, I I don't know, it does seem like kind of a feudal or, like, a serf thing where, uh, the nobles own the land, and the, the commoners live on the land, and use it and then like pay the nobles and then the nobles pay the king that type of Mm -hmm. thing um but we also do in this book get the indication that um nobles or at least nobles of the rank or whatever or size of land whatever that dunlath has are only allowed to have 40 men at arms um which is really interesting to me from a perspective of, like, how feudal mil- militaries work versus how Tortal's military works. Do you think that might be actually as a result of, you know, at the end of Alana, uh, was it, there were a couple noble families who I guess had a large um, set of, like, military peoples who, like, tried to take over the crown. And they might have then limited uh, what nobles could and couldn't have at a later time to prevent that. That's just wild speculation. Yeah, it could. I mean, it could definitely be a direct result of what happened in Alana. But I, I think regardless of whether it is or not, I'm fairly certain of, of that a thing that we know... Well, okay. Um, actually, this, this could be an interesting sort of transition that happens between Alana and Dane, because we do know that... Um, the King's Own was, like, kind of nothing before Raoul mm-hmm. made it, like, a really powerful fighting force. So this could be a transition. But um, I guess within Dane, we know that noble families are only allowed, or this type of noble family, whatever, are only allowed to have 40 men-at-arms. And we also know that uh, 
the King's Own is made up of several companies, which are each a hundred people. So there's several hundred people in the King's Own, and then beyond that, there's also a standing army. Mm -hmm. And then there's also the Queen's Riders and stuff. So Tortal has a huge standing army that's not coming from any of these, you know, feudal lords. And I, th I think under classical feudalism in real history, kings mostly raised armies by going to their vassals and asking them, like, can you supply some mm -hmm. men? So that's not how Tortal works at all. <laughs> mm -hmm. And it's much more sort of like an Age of Imperialism model, I think, where they have this big standing army so that they can go use it to, like, conquer people and control their lands and stuff all the time, rather than having this sort of, like, top-down organization where the army is made up of smaller armies controlled by smaller lords. So I don't know. I, I just think that's really interesting and sort of a a place where the the idea of Tortal as a strictly feudal country breaks mm. down. Yeah. Did, did you have more questions to ask about class, Aurora? I was wondering, so within this book, we don't hear very much from the people that live, you know, within the, is it a duchy? Whatever, Dunlaf. The people themselves. Yeah. Um, and I was wondering, so mm. I was kind of, in that we don't hear from them, I'm wondering if there is such, like, a strict hierarchy or within that society such that they can't do anything. Like, um, like, when I first read this, I was surprised that just the entire township hadn't just, like, rebelled. Um, but I was wondering, given, I guess, is it because the large military presence there that they can't? Or is this kind of some, like, social thing? Or, um... Well, partially I think it's just that a lot of them don't actually know the extent of what's going on. Because we do get the, the perspective of Tate, the hunter, and he says, you know, oh, I left the castle because it was getting kind of weird there, but he doesn't know about the treason until he meets up with Dane's crew. But I think he also says, I mean, he says, like, partway along, I think when he's, like, saying that he's going to tell everybody in the village to evacuate, he says... Well, we're we're we've been like bothered by all these immortals coming in who treat us badly, but you know, like Yole in this whole time she's been treating us badly, but you know you can't choose your lords is what he says. Mm -hmm. So I think it's also partially like a social thing, like he was implying that they have like some large amount of built in loyalty right, to Yole, even though she's not great, <laughs> obviously. Right. The kind of like moral rules of feudalism which require you to submit to your lord, whatever your lord is, and it requires your lord to be good to you, but if they're not, you don't have much recourse that doesn't necessarily negate that moral obligation under that system. Right, and this universe does kind of want us to buy into that as a system. Uh -huh. Like, Tortal in general <laughs> seems to operate sort of under the, the values that individual lords can be bad, and that's bad for the people underneath them, but, you know, as long as you have a good lord who take it's their responsibility to take care of the people and the people love them for that and everything's fine so like the real problem is just these individual bad apples and not like the system yeah which we have said is to some degree the conceit of romantic fantasy as a genre like yeah. all of romantic fantasy operates under that assumption well some more than others but yeah yeah i feel that i that really bothered me especially in this book because like Elaine and Belden are very much set up as like the bad nobles. Like look, here they are in their castle like treating the servants badly and like not letting them eat with them and not treating them equally. Unlike the good nobles 
who like do value their servants. Like the king is like very nice to his servants. Everybody right. I, I, sorry, I just wanted to interject. I um oh, I yeah, thought yeah. it was really interesting that it was specifically like a marker of villainy when they first go to the castle that like all all the servants are are you know very like they have well trained silence and they don't eat in the mm-hmm. same room as the nobles mm-hmm. and like that's how you know that they're villainous. Even though, right, like, I, I guess so, so the other good nobles are still allowed to be good even though they also have servants because they are nice to the servants. <laughs> yeah, and it, it bothered me especially in this book that, like, I don't know, like, I, I, t- I, t- I touched on this in the last book that, like, the just idea of there being, like, good nobles kind of bothers me even though I understand romantic fantasy <laughs> conceit. But here, like, Mora is a noble too, right? And everybody consistently, like, Dane, like, even the immortals, like, refer to her as, like, my lady or Lady Mora, like, all the time. But she's an 11-year-old child. So I feel like they're, like, automatically, like, they're, like, automatically granting her, like, a lot of authority and respect. Which I don't think necessarily, I don't think that's necessarily, like, something that they shouldn't do based on her age. But based on the fact that she's, like, a good person and not a bad noble and, like, a practical person... She never says, like, oh, just call me Mora or, like, anything like that. Like, very much, like, they're all still buying into this classist system. And it's okay because she's a good noble. And, like, were she to take over Dunlath, like, she would treat people fairly. So it's fine that she's in charge. Right. So that's, and, yeah, that's the resolution to the narrative that everyone sees as sort of, like, a return to the good order of things is putting a different noble in charge who is also a (laughs) (laughs) ten-year-old. Yeah. Yeah, precisely. (laughs) And, right, I mean, it's also, um, I think, very sort of important to the people of Dunlath that she is not just any noble, but, like, the actual heir to Dunlath once Yelaine is removed from the picture. So, like, right, there, there is that level of she is a good leader because it is her blood right to mm-hmm. own this land. Oh. Yeah, precisely, because literally she's a 10-year-old, like, she doesn't have that much experience with leadership by virtue of her age and experience, (laughs) so I don't think they can, like, say, like, oh, yes, she is so qualified, so experienced. Like, potentially, like, she could be a great democratically elected leader, (laughs) I don't know, but she's certainly not a democratically elected leader. (laughs) Yeah. Anyway, that was something that bothered me. And, like, there's no, you would expect since Tortal's, uh higher-ups, like, John and Thea consider themselves kind of more progressive monarchs, that they would have imposed some sort of accountability system for their nobles, such that the people that lived on their land had, you know, some way, you know, that the only people that they don't answer to are not just, um, their, like, I don't want to say overlords, but, you know, uh, the nobles. Literally, they're overlords, Well, yeah. (laughs) I do think... You know, won't go into it now, but I think we get more hints of that in Tella and of why they don't just impose it, and also what they are and aren't doing, and whether or not they've been doing their best. Um, that so it, we can come back to that, that is true. in another quartet. We'll yeah, but back. I mean, what what we see here is a very sort of top down system mm-hmm. where the the peasants are being oppressed, but they can't, they don't have any recourse to go to someone higher, mm-hmm. and it's the responsibility of the king and the people who work for the king to see that the nobles are doing a bad thing and to take them out of power. Although, to be fair, like, I think they would hypothetically have the... Like, if they were had the money to send somebody to Chorus, well, 
and yeah. petition the king. They would have that resource recourse. Um, they don't necessarily, in part, just because, like, yeah, they have literally. They it, this is a different form of the class issue. They literally do not have the resources. Right. I mean, themselves. yeah. I, I do that's... think they have the legal or sure, but that's still a barrier that they right, don't no, have definitely. the resources to talk directly to the king. Yeah. So that that's a barrier as much as a legal barrier would be. Mm-hmm. It's just a different one. The wolves, on the other hand, have all the resources to do that, apparently. (laughs) Well, they have a direct (laughs) magical line. Um, I, mental health, just one little thing. I retract everything I said positive last month, last book, this book. Yeah. Because the things I liked about what they did with mental health, which was not Mm -hmm. everything, but the things I liked were just completely outweighed by the fact that in this book they were like, I'm not crazy, like... (sighs) It was just this, like, very simplistic, like, oh, well, like, but it's fine because I'm not crazy and I'm just a good normal person and I just hated it. Yeah, I have a section in my notes that just says, it's like a section heading and it says, Tamora Pierce isn't good about writing about mental health corner. (laughs) (laughs) Um, She's not. Yeah, it it was not handled well throughout a lot of this book. And the way that Cloud handles it, like, Cloud, I, I was hoping better. You're supposed to be there for Dane. <laughs> um, yeah, but also just the way that Dane thinks, like, uh, you know, right, that that being crazy is specifically, like, having delusions, and if that was true, that would just be, like, the end of the world. Like, that, you know, like... It's so good that she ends up not, like not being crazy, quote unquote, because if she was, that would just be the worst thing imaginable, you know. Yeah. Well then, should we move on to our final social justice section, which will be environmental stuff in this book? <laughs> <laughs> uh, I got very strong. Well, not very strong. I got Lord of the Rings vibes from this, you know, and like the pro-nature, anti-mechanation kind of thing, that don't mind, don't cut down our trees. I got Princess Mononoke Aww. vibes. Because <laughs> wolves. Because <laughs> wolves in a town on a lake. And oh my gosh, so true. <laughs> yeah, fair. Wolf girl. <laughs> but also, I'm just always getting Princess Mononoke vibes. So. <laughs> That's fair. Yeah, I don't know. It was an interesting message. Uh... You know, I, I don't know, because partially just because it came down so hard on the, um, like, the environmentalist message, but it was almost, like, mixed with the, um... The social message? Like, oppression. Mm. Yeah. The, sorry, mm. the what? Oh, yeah, the oppression, kind of, the uh, social half of it. Right, right. Because, um, I mean, you, you specifically have, like, the ogres that they're, like, enslaving, and that's bad. But then also the way we see the environmentalist stuff is through all these animals who are, you know, like we specifically have the wolves um, calling Dane because their, like their environment is getting destroyed. So like, I don't know, it's interesting, I guess, I guess partially just because there's a a very sort of complex history um, between environmentalist groups and, um, oppressed and marginalized groups of people mm-hmm. um and often environment environmentalism sort of prioritizes like conserving the natural environment 
above actually making people's lives better or like preserving human lives at all yeah it's like the whole like two schools of conservation where one of them is conservation for conservation's sake and the other one's conservation of resources uh-huh yeah so right i mean this book sort of like really blurs the lines there because it's saying we should preserve the environment but like because the you know the animals are characters who live there and their lives are getting destroyed and also because people are getting exploited in this process i don't know it's i don't know i think you can read it as kind of an environmental <laughs> justice reading i'm not really sure it's actually that nuanced. no i would kind of i read it more of just oh like i'm not a, saying it's nuanced at all no like in some ways it's actually saying it's a very much ignoring the ways that environmentalism is more complicated than everything is better if we don't mine uh right in no, part I mean, because I... like the resources they're mining for are i mean a getting extracted and going to a foreign land but b like not that useful to anyone around there and they're not seeing any of the benefits um uh, and like oh yeah isn't it convenient that like no jobs are being lost this is purely slave labor that is getting freed like <laughs> right. you know like i i you know grew up in a very environmentalist household and I feel very strongly about environmentalism but I do think this is a middle grade story of environmentalism and it is very mm. simple. Right, no, I mean, I guess that's partially what I was saying is that yeah. it doesn't acknowledge any sort of complexity other than, like, um, you know, the, like, oh, the, the people who are getting enslaved and the animals whose habitats are getting destroyed and all this stuff, like, these are all sort of one group, and it's bad for everyone, like, unilaterally, that this is happening, you know? And and so we just need to stop cutting down trees, and that will solve everyone's problems. I mean, it is it is very simplistic, but I do, I do feel like when you talked about it being, like, more about... I don't know, like, I'd always read it as very simplistic, but actually when you talked about, like, the potential ways it could interface with environmental justice, like, I realized it sort of does that more than I thought it had because very much like Dane is brought in as like a person who can speak for a group whose voices aren't being heard. I mean mm-hmm. literally because they're worse. <laughs> but also like the envisioned solution is sort of like a mixed it's not like a return to full nature, which of course it isn't because it's a fantasy book that's mostly centered on people despite being about animals, but sort of like the perfect solution is this society in which they keep using the land, but in more sustainable mm-hmm. ways and allow, like, a certain amount of wildland to, like, exist alongside of that. Yeah, that was something I really liked, actually, was that the um, the solution was not to return Dunleth to exactly the way that it had been, but to find a way for all the people who were there currently to coexist and have, you know, mm-hmm. sustainable, successful lives. Um, yeah yeah and yeah that's good i think yeah i like that i like that a lot yeah w- wouldn't it be nice if we could uh consult with wild animals about their needs and bring them <laughs> into our like coalitions just like they're doing that would be that'd be super cool <laughs> but right so yeah i guess i mean partially just that like i don't know well i'm curious in general about um you know this book has a, a general sort of message of like change isn't inherently bad you just have to sort of like do it responsibly Mm -hmm. in terms of like land use Mm -hmm. and stuff Mm -hmm. but um that is sort of mirrored in the way that you know dane is kind of uncontrollably changing 
these animals' mentalities. Yeah, for sure. To make them less animal-y. And that's something that, you know, she brings up sort of the moral ambiguity or the, of that, yeah, or the, the difficulty that she has with mm-hmm. that of she doesn't want to change their natures. But it does also sort of, pretty much everyone else is like, well, you can't help it. And also, it's useful that they're able to think like humans now, so let's just, like, run with it. So, I don't know how I feel about that. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I I mean, (laughs) I always have mixed feelings about, like, about the, like, where you should fall on a moral spectrum about, like, land usage and, like, balancing humans' needs with the needs of ecosystems to survive and... I, I mean, there's there's a different answer for everybody, depending on how you play that out. But I thought it was interesting that it didn't play out as, like, totally returning to wildness mm-hmm. here. Mm-hmm. Right, Although and I, I do think it... I'm not sure it actually grappled with that at all. Like, <laughs> those places where those ochres are settling, are we supposed to assume that they are so useless even to animals that no one's getting displaced? Like, and all of this to say, like, this is a middle grade book. There is not room for, like, you know, the, like, 50 to 100 pages of negotiation I wanted. Um, I would read that. Probably most people would. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, I think, like, uh, obviously it doesn't go, like, deep into it. But, right, I think there's, you know, definitely sort of room for interpretation there of, like, the sort of careless, um, you know, clearing of the forest, strip mining... Um, the, and specifically also the pouring poison yeah. directly into the river <laughs> yes. to kill things for miles around. Yeah. <laughs> Very subtle. Like mildly heavy-handed. Very subtle, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I, I think it makes sense and it's a good sort of message that there's, um, that doing that and exploiting people and animals to do so is an entirely different thing from changing the way the land is but presumably since they're in communication with the animals also you know like leaving space for them to exist which right we don't see that but i think the implication that it is there (laughs) is good and helpful and i like it (laughs) okay well should we should we move to zombie author yeah um and talk about authorial intent the only thing i have listed in this section is that um, there's a point where Dane mentions that she hates winter, and Alana also hates the cold, <laughs> so I kind of feel like we can draw from this that Tamara Pierce probably is not a big fan of the cold. Yeah. <laughs> or chickens. Or, or chickens. And that cats are objectively, like, liking cats is objectively a sign right. of good character, and not liking cats means you're a terrible human being. <laughs> well, I agree with that, so I'm fine with that. <laughs> Yeah. Although she does think cats are evil, so I'm not really sure. She has lots of complicated feelings about cats. It's true. The evil person doesn't like cats, but also the cat god is described as cruel, so it's hard to tease out Tamara Pierce's true <laughs> feelings about cats. Um, Amy did have a good suggestion for what we should bring up here if we didn't have anything. So she wanted, she suggested that we talk about how apparently Tamara Pierce. Um, when she was trying to, like, think about who she was going to base Numera on, um, thought she was going to base him on Gene Simmons. Okay, first. yeah, but then she, what she ended up going with was Jeff Goldblum. <laughs> and also, Amy says Jeff Goldblum, dinosaurs, and here, Numera hangs out with a dragon, so it's, like, uh, the same oops. thing. <laughs> That's what she says. Sure. <laughs> 
Um, I mean, I do think, like, from an authorial intent perspective, uh, there is actually a really interesting stuff, or, or I guess, like, a, it's really notable that, um, Gene Simmons and Jeff Goldblum, I believe, are both Jewish, right? Oh, I don't know. I was just about to bring that up. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, yeah, that definitely is a point towards your Semitic mm-hmm. coding. Right, so that that's not, like, information that appears in the text, but, uh, you know, <laughs> evidence on the I'm- pile. Super traumatized by the fact that New Mayor might be Gene Simmons. <laughs> I need to forget that. Really Amy was quickly. so traumatized by the Jeff Goldblum <laughs> information. Like, more than I thought was reasonable. Jeff Goldblum is better than Gene Simmons, please. I'm gonna cry. Okay. Yeah, um, I don't, well, I don't mind New Mayor as a young Jeff Goldblum. <laughs> Jeff Goldblum has, like, that goofy, weird charisma. Yeah, weird enough for New Mayor. <laughs> Um, well, should we move on to friendship moments then? Because I feel like we always have a lot. Yes, yes, yes. Queens writers, friendship time, animal friends. Okay, friends, friends, friends. Who wants to throw out a pair? Oh, wait, I want to throw out a pair of friends. Um, Bluters and Scrap. I love them. They're such good friends. Um. Yeah, I mean, right, so this book, like, there's a billion examples of animal (laughs) friendship, but there's also, like, a lot of friendship between animals, and it was all really, like, sweet, like, you know, right, blueness and scrap. I also really liked when the, um, you know, the wolves were, like, peeing on the wolf traps that they passed, and then the horses did (laughs) it, too. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Also, shout out to Tate and his dogs, who love him a lot. Uh, Yeah. uh, they're such good friends. Also, also, can I tell you my dream friendship from this book? I really like want to read all the scenes that don't exist where Takah and New Mare like yes. hang out with each other because I feel like they would be best friends. I mean, <laughs> I love that Takah has just a beautiful friendship with every single person that he meets. It's so true. I love him. He's like the perfect diplomat. All of this book is, I mean, if you include Immortals, all, like, 100% of this book is animal friendship. <laughs> it's so friends, friends, friends. I also, I loved, this isn't quite friendship, but I guess it's sort of friendship, like, when Numer and the Badger meet each other for the first time and the Badger totally talks down to Numer. I also love that scene. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, uh, I, I really enjoyed, also, uh, just in general, both animals being rude to Numer and Numer being polite to animals. Both of those things were great. Yes. Uh, oh my god. Um, another thing just very central to the theme of this book and also kind of the series. I really loved um Broke Fang's little lecture on pack and the importance of Aww. pack. Where he says it is, no, it is not just for food that you need a pack. It is for warmth and the pack song. The wolf who sings alone is not happy. Oh. But then he mentions that even humans need a pack, and then he looks at Cloud and he's like, or a herd. And it's very cute. Touching. Saying, it's okay, Dane, we approve of your blended family, too. Yeah. Like, you're part of our pack, but we get it. You also have your horse friend. Also, wait, let's talk about Rebel. Speaking of horses, Rebel, the, the fast, fast horse. horse. The fastest horse cat. The fastest and horse. And all the other horses in the valley agree that he's the best runner. Except for Cloud, yes. who is the most ordinary horse. So, okay. I specifically have on here, like, my love for Cloud will never die, but um, my love for Cloud in this book is especially just based on the fact that, like, Cloud is so distinct from all of the other horses. Mm-hmm. And this is <laughs> yeah. not true for any of the other animals. Like, 
the wolves are different from each other, but they're still all kind of variations on a theme, and as are, like, you know, all of the bats, all of the cats. Mm -hmm. Like, they all have, like, a distinct personality and then, like, variations within that. And then Cloud is just, like, nothing like all of the other horses, and she's just ornery all the time. And my favorite quote from her in this one was just, I am not impressed by your oat ration. <laughs> oh my god, Cloud. Yes, Calm down, good. I love it. I also really liked when we got the the reveal that like Brokefang got, you know, extra exposure to Dane by licking her blood, and then Cloud was just like, "I have bitten you and drawn blood so many times. <laughs> I have had your blood in my mouth constantly." Oh, Cloud. Uh, I also enjoyed like the kind of gruff uncle niece thing that Mara and uh. Stormwing Man, who's Tate. Oh, yeah. Also, I find both of those relationships. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, Mara had just like really cute relationships with everyone. Yeah, it's true. I also really like her and her and Dane's sort of relationship, where Dane, you know, Dane's fourteen and Mora's ten, and like, you know, Dane sees her as a like sort of annoying tag along a lot of the time, but then sometimes she's like completely schooled by her. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, I mean, really, but, like they they clearly like both have things to author and like. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I like the, the time when, um, Dane, like, corrected Mora's grammar, and then, like, a page later, Mora corrected her making the exact same uh-huh. grammar mistake. <laughs> that was very cute. Also, like, forever, like, Numer and Dane are, like, such good travel companions in this book. Yeah. Like, they take turns, like, mm-hmm. cooking and cleaning when they travel. They're so considerate. <laughs> and they're both, like, so, like... You know, Dane's relatively chill about being stuck on the opposite side of the barrier from him, but then, like, when they're reunited, they're both, like, emotional about it, and it's cute. Also, though, she's, like, super, like, basically, like, Numer's like, wow, I just felt this really big duel, and I'm really tired, and she's like, okay, bye, I'm running off now. (laughs) Yeah, that too. That's also good. I also really appreciate the number of animals who are just, like, yeah, you're asking me to do crazy things, but, like, it's fun, and you're entertaining, and, like, when else would I have a reason to, like, go, like, scout around an enemy camp? Like, they're just very entertained by the things she asked them to do. Yeah, Flicker's always like, lol, this is a good time. <laughs> yeah, I have questions about, like, how every single animal seems to, like, Dane automatically, but in this book it's so much less, like, they would automatically die for her, and more just like, yeah, huh, yeah. that's novel, <laughs> yeah. I'd like to try it. <laughs> it's more like she's, you know, the new kid, and everybody's right. curious and wants to know what she does, like, like yeah, what her what her deal is. And here I think they have a lot of impetus, right, too, because a lot of them are like, oh, we can tell our habitat's being destroyed, and you are purposely saying, like, I'm trying to stop it. Right, and also, importantly, like, I think I brought this up last time, that, like, last time when she's, like, having them all defend their territory, I'm like... They probably don't care which humans are in the <laughs> castle. That's probably completely unimportant yeah. to them. But here it's like, no, actually, it's them who are benefiting from this change in power that Dane is trying to make yeah, happen. Precisely. Mm-hmm. Um, any more striking friendship moments to bring up? I guess we've been sort of been mixing friendship, human and animal friendship pretty wildly <laughs> here, but I have a human friendship <laughs> thing, which is that um, I... Horse Lords is a specifically Kamiri <laughs> expression, and um, what's the other one? My- Mithros, Minos, and Shaketh uh-huh. is a thing that Dane mentions that she's only ever heard Numer say, but she says both of those yeah. things in this book because she picked them up from her friends. I think and that's she really cute. also references the Graveyard Hag and says she's mm-hmm. yeah. that from Numer, so yeah, they're exchanging, <laughs> exchanging exclamations. Uh-huh. 
I just want to catch up on all the friendship time they had in between the last book and this yeah, book. Yeah, no, and I want to know what, what like, Ono and Burry and stuff are up to, and, like, are, have they been hanging out with Dane? Like, what's <laughs> the deal? Man. Ah, <laughs> uh, friendship. <laughs> um, I guess, should we then move on to night vision, foreshadowing, speculation, spoilers? So we'll have a sound cue. And then we'll have another sound cue when we're done talking about it, so you can not hear the spoilers if you don't want to. These are spoilers for future books in Tarnal. So Amy's wrong. <laughs> Shocking. What about this time? What about this time? Well, she's not wrong about the That's... animorphs. <laughs> that is... It's true. That it, yeah, quite. Yeah, her really great, fa- this is not even a spoiler thing, but her really great fan theory about how Dane turns into yeah. a wolf was uh, Spot on. fulfilled. It's not like, it's not quite correctly placed in time, yeah. but yeah. it's correctly placed in that it happens. But like, Dane's like, lineage, like, the person who's her dad is like, pretty, pretty obvious at this point. Like, very much. Like, the uh, most. Yeah. yeah. Let me just keep dropping this god's name and he has antlers. And by the way, remember how you had Where a dream? Where he was, like, hanging out with mom. <laughs> yeah, I'm honestly shocked that she's... Like, we... She, she mentions that she hasn't heard of him, which I thought was interesting, but also, like, the fact that she gets this full description of, like, he's a hunt god, he has antlers. And she's like, huh, I've been seeing this guy with antlers hanging out with my mom. What could possibly be happening here? <laughs> I love it. Oh, good. Well, she doesn't. She doesn't. I don't think she even remembers that. She says antlers sound familiar, but I just oh, can't. Oh no! Yeah, she doesn't. Them. She doesn't remember it in the moment, but yeah. she keeps having these dreams yeah. where she where there's she's like, "What is my mom doing with this guy who has antlers?" Well, you did just bring up an interesting question, which is yeah, like why hasn't she heard of him? Like we yeah. do know he's a relatively small god. That's I think firmly established at least at some point. Um, but, like, he also seems to be a god whose, like, place is, like, these Northwoods kind of <laughs> Where area. she lived. Yeah, yeah, I mean, we don't know exactly... I don't, right, I think it's a little strange that, like, um, the, the, like, hunting community across these regions is tight enough that Tate, the hunter, has actually heard about Dane yeah. from other hunters, but that his hunting god has not made it to her. Yeah, I don't know, it's a little strange. She did say that she, like, very much, like, avoided hunters, mm-hmm. but I still I yeah. still don't think that would really be yeah. recent enough, aside yeah. from convenience. <laughs> I mean, it's also, like, I don't know exactly how, like, regional gods work in this world, but, like, would it, I, like, I feel like it would be a little strange for him to show up on Beltane, as the legends say, in an area <laughs> where he was not, like, worshipped. Yep. <laughs> yeah. It could be that her mother kind of, like, deliberately tried <laughs> to keep her away from hearing about it. Which that would make sense. may be possible only because she wasn't terribly integrated into the village, as far as we can tell. Yeah. And I mean, could be she like does that. keep, like, forgetting. Like, do you remember when she's like, oh, I feel like I've seen that man before. When she, like, definitely had that dream. So I wonder if there's uh... not something else going on, like some sort of, like, shielding of her from, like, those memories or that association. Because the yeah. graveyard hag, we know, can do kind of things like that. Like, Right. And we know that the badger is keeping her from asking yeah. about him through some kind of mind magic. Yeah, so there definitely could be some kind of magic that's just, like, making her not able to make this connection. Um, I have, Oh, yeah, I was also sort of curious about, like, 
you know, we get, we, we haven't said his name yet, and I don't know how to pronounce it. We're in, we're in Wyron. Uh, yeah, I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Wyron or Wyron. Wyron. Yeah, okay, anyway, him. <laughs> um, we get introduced to him very specifically as, like, a god of the hunt, and I'm curious about how that sort of ties into the fact that, like, Dane is, you know, this bridge who can talk to immortals and humans and animals. You know, I don't know. It, it seems like, you know, it kind of makes sense. Hunter has some connection to nature, so she got a bunch of wild magic. But I'm curious, I guess, like, is it relevant that she is part immortal? I don't know. I, we'll probably get more into this stuff in later books. Yeah, I think it's interesting, too, that she, like, seems to have so much power, but it's derived from, like, what appears to be a relatively minor regional god. Which I think is the only reason he can get away. Like, we have no other indication of demigods in this world, as far as I remember. Yeah, yeah we don't. Like, so I think this is less of, uh, you know, Percy Jackson and the Olympians. Everyone's <laughs> running around, and most of the main heroes are, are demigods, and more of a... The big gods just don't even have children. Mm-hmm. Like, they just wouldn't even do that. Whereas, mm-hmm. and, like, only the minor gods are even close enough to humanity to have those Yeah, well, and that, that makes sense, sort of, in terms of Kelly's question of, like, how is Dane this powerful if her power derives from a minor god? Could just be that, like, demigods are unheard of, so the fact that she mm-hmm. has even, like, this level of closeness to divinity is a huge deal. Mm-hmm. Um, more spoilers. Do we want to talk about the Emperor at all? I guess. Yeah, I really, I really want to talk about him, actually. Um, <laughs> okay, let's do it. And the fact that, um, so, like, everything that goes wrong in the first two books is a direct, is, is Karthak and Ozorn's fault. And, like, this is pretty well built yeah. up, that mm-hmm. he's, like, the, he's, like, he's the series villain, right? But <laughs> then, he's... Not, like, he, he's not a serious I mean, well, like, he's not, yeah. (laughs) Like, I don't know. It's just, like, it, it seems so much more than Alana, like, this is really, you know, built up in a way of, like, okay, so here, at first we get, like, some indication that Ozorn is, like, up to something, and then in the second book we get, like, okay, here's a treason plot that's been, that's directly related to him, so, like, obviously he's a bad dude. Um, and then, right, I guess, first off, the fact that the the next book is a, di- a diplomatic yeah. mission to go hang out with Ozorn <laughs> is kind of fascinating. <laughs> um, but then second, the fact that, like, Karthak is toppled in the next book is, like, a really interesting resolution to this arc that they've been building up for three books of a four-book series. So that's my main, like, question, is why is that happening? (laughs) There's, like, this connection between the Karthaki Empire and, like, the new, like, the entry of the Immortals into the human world. And, like, those are all, like, entwined with one another, and they're, like, slowly, you know, going through questions of the relationship between humans and immortals, and that kind of comes to its peak right after everything, like, goes to shit in... Sorry, when everything goes bad in... Goes um, back. <laughs> um Right, no, I mean, I guess I, I think it's it's interesting, I guess, that, um, right, like, Ozorn is the, the big bad mm-hmm. here, but the real, like, conflict is this bigger issue that he just yeah. starts about, like, how do immortals interact with humans. Also, I think he does show up in the He does. Book. He's there, but he's not like, the emperor of Karthak. Right, but I'm just saying, he, he's not totally <laughs> not 
the big bad at the end either. Like, he also is that. Also, I don't know if this is really a spoiler, but I totally forgot Tristan turned into a tree in this book. Like, I kind of, <laughs> I kind of remembered him being around later. Then I was like, well, I guess he's gone. I guess he's yeah. a tree now. Oh, speaking of immortals, I did have a kind of question. So we know Rispa. Rispa? Is that his name? The Stormwing? No, that's the name of a thief lady from a lot of... <laughs> oh my god, that's true. It's like, um... Rickash. Yeah, Rickash. So... He's working for Ozorn because he's been tricked, which we learn in the next mm-hmm. book. Um, so, I don't know what... So, how does he grapple with, like, what the uh, people in Dunleth are doing with, like, the Herx and the or- like and the Ogres? Is there, like, no cross-immortal solidarity? Like, they're very much, like, distinct little... I don't know. Kindred groups? I don't know what to call them. I don't know. I don't know. I mean, I do think it's possible that he's, like, sort of conflicted about it. Also, I do think it does seem to be that there is very little cross-immortal solidarity. I don't think they think of themselves as Mm -hmm. a whole group that has common interests. I think that's fair. Uh, Which, I Mm -hmm. mean, in part because I think, you know, in the Divine Realms, they probably were actually in conflict, given that we know that there's no room there. Right, well, I mean, Uh, I think they may or may not, you know, I mean, like, the dragons and basilisks think of each other like as related and stuff so like right. right i'm sure they have different relations but mm-hmm. it, yeah they don't they're not united against a common other so there's no right. reason that they would have solidarity and there might be reason for them to now right. except that it seems pretty clear that some immortals are successfully getting along with humans a lot better yeah. than other immortals that makes sense um and so that would kind of yeah lead them to not form that united mm-hmm. front mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right, I mean, yeah, it is interesting that, like, at this point, they're all kind of getting exploited by, um, Karthak, yeah. but to very different extents, I guess. Mm-hmm. Right. The Stormwings, like, could probably fight back, but there's, like, some tricksiness going on. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Um, let's move on to the Chamber of the Ordeal, where we rate this book and on nostalgia and animal friendship, and we say who we would recommend it to. And Shelby, we could do you last if you'd like. Thank you. <laughs> okay. Um, does anybody want to go first? Does anybody feel particularly ready? Uh, I guess I can go. I'm just gonna. I don't. I don't remember what. I, I like went one book, and now I don't remember what like my scale for nostalgia mm. is. Um. I mean, probably like a like a seven out of ten for nostalgia because it was like pretty nostalgic, and it didn't do anything that like really took me out of it and made me think like this thing from my childhood is horrible. <laughs> so it was yeah, it was good. Um, and animal friendship, just solid ten out of ten. Cannot get more animal friendship than this. I think you know p- people might be going over the ten scale, but I think I'm gonna say ten is the absolute <laughs> top of my scale, and that means one hundred percent animal friendship. <laughs> Um, who would you recommend this book to? Oh, who would I recommend this book to? I mean, like, most children. Like, it's definitely a children's yeah. book. So, not most adults. Um, but, <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I mean, like, obviously there's some problematic stuff that we talked about, but I, I don't think any of it is at the level where I would tell kids not to read this book. So, so just all children. <laughs> um, Aurora, would you sure. like to go next? Do you feel ready? Um, I'll give this... 
Yeah, I think I have 7 out of 10 for nostalgia as well, but I'm going to up it to an 8 because I just remember that I like this book better when I read it now than I did when I was a kid, so it has the nostalgia factor and the like nice. it improved factor. <laughs> um, and Animal Friendship, yeah, of course, 10 out of 10. Like, <laughs> if we can get good animal-animal friendship moments, animal-human friendship moments, right. animal-immortal friendship moments, yeah. like, yeah, so much good animal friendship. Um... And I would also recommend the book to the youths, like the young teens, the kids. I think I agree with Abby's uh, sentiment with that regard. <laughs> okay, well, I think my rating is going to be pretty much exactly the same as you <laughs> I was going to do 7 out of 10 for nostalgia, but I think I also have to bump it because I forgot about Takata's ah! existence. Oh, and yeah. remembering it made my life so much better, so definitely like at least an 8 out of 10. Um, you can talk about how Takah holds his tail up like a lady holding her pinky yes, up. I love Takah. That's Takata. amazing. Perfect. I love him. <laughs> um, <laughs> and Animal Friendship, I think also a solid 10 out of 10. Although, like Shelby and I said before, eventually I may go over 10 out of 10. But I like, kind of think this is the peak, though. Like, I don't know if there's going to be more Animal yeah. Friendship than this. Ah, I guess, I guess, I guess, I guess. Yeah, it might be. But like... 10 out of 10 out of 10 out of 10. I love it. It's great. So <laughs> yeah. much friendship. I feel happy. Um, I suppose I would, I think I would also recommend this without reservations to all young children, young adults, um, especially people who really like wolves. I think <laughs> <a good> <laughs> uh, yeah. So I, I, I'm going to have to say 8.5 out of 10 on nostalgia, I think, because I have to be different. <laughs> uh, <laughs> But, I mean, I loved this book as a kid, and while, like, it doesn't have for me so much of a, like, there's nothing I love about it now that I didn't love about it as a kid. Like, it, it is what I thought it was as a kid. It's a really good kid adventure story with lots and lots of animals. <laughs> uh, and that's a good thing to be. So, like, lots of nostalgia, um, but say, distinct from my feelings about the Kel books, which we will see in the future. Um... <laughs> And then for animal friendship, because, yeah, I think Abby is right. I think this is probably my peak. <laughs> like, I don't know. Kel has some good animal friendship, but this is still probably my peak animal friendship. Uh, because, as you know, I have been very clear about I am a wolf kid. Like, that is core to my identity. <laughs> so I'm going to give it a 12 out of 10 for animal friendship. Oh, so good. Uh, I feel like I should increase mine. <laughs> yeah, I, I agree with that sentiment wholeheartedly. Animals. Just, like, the variety of animal friendship, like... Yeah, I mean, a friendship between animals, right. like, that's pretty... Oh, oh. Okay, 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 I'm just <laughs> 11 out of 10, because I just feel the need to give it that extra, extra little star. I love it. This one goes to 11. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> um, okay, let's... Wait, Shelly, who would you recommend it to? Oh, uh, yeah, who would you recommend yeah. it to? Yeah, so I, I stick firmly to my, uh animal kids not that i wouldn't also recommend it to everyone else it's just that i need to somehow differentiate my different tamra pierce starting points uh and so this one i would very much recommend to all of the animal kids especially the dog kids and the wolf kids who will love it very as good. much as i do perfect okay let us move on to palace gossip where we read some listener mail so our first um question is from nell uh thank you nell who said, I reread Dane's first book before I listened to the new episode, and I totally forgot Maud is there. I mean, it has to be Maud that raised Alana and Tom, right? Yeah. Yes. yes, probably. <laughs> and it's delightful. Right. So, she, so 
um, Alana went and, like, brought her to Pirate Swoop, and now she's helping raise Alana's kids, Aww. and that's wonderful. Yeah. Yes, we all liked it. We were excited about that um, when mm. we talked about it. Um, our next is a note from Ranger Danger with an X, where the, both of the A's would be, but I don't know how to pronounce that, so I apologize. <laughs> I think it's like a uvular uh, huh. said, It's Ranger Danger. It's the nerdiest thing we've ever said on this podcast. <laughs> Okay, well, this is a letter from Rakhunji. <laughs> no. <laughs> it says, I was re listening to Wild Magic Part 2, and I had some thoughts on your discussion about Alana's domestic life. An interesting point that I think could be made would be a generational one. The, feminis- the feminism of Tamora Pierce's era was very focused on having it all as kind of a tagline, and that could have influenced the choice for Alana. Yeah. Good observation. (laughs) Yeah, no, I mean, I think a lot of Alana's narrative is very sort of second-wave feminism of she can do all the things that boys do, but without, like, losing her femininity, she can do all the things that boys do and be a woman, and being a woman means having children, you know? (laughs) So, yeah, I definitely think that's a big part of it. Um, And I think that's relevant to how we get a little more variety in later characters. Also, I mean, I, I think partially just because Alana is... Um, I mean, pretty much the only female character that we get for most of the Alana books, and like, you know, because she was the first one, she was the only female protagonist we had at that time, so, uh, there's a certain amount of she, she has to represent everything that a woman can be, right? No, because um, she's the only one. I often like to say, like, one... One example of a given group can never be good representation because whatever you say is true about that character in your representation is now true about that group. And so by virtue of having, like, Tamara Pierce's way out of that for Alana is just to make everything true of Alana. Alana can do everything, and therefore I'm not limiting women at all. Which is like, okay, but have you considered having more than one female character instead? Yeah. I mean, none of that is to say, like, uh, you know, I think Amy especially expressed a lot of discomfort about, or not discomfort, but, like, I guess disappointment that Alana, like, had to go have children, and, like, she didn't have to, she did it because she wanted to, and, you know, so I think, like, you know, there there are lots of different, like, kinds of femininity that are good, and we really only see the sort of, like, 80s career woman who can have it all in Alana, but, you know, like... That's that's not bad. Mm-hmm. Right. Like, it's good that she is able to have a career and have children. Yeah. And we're certainly, you know, getting a much uh, more diverse set of female characters as we continue through this series, and that that is good. Yeah, it's really, really exciting to just see more female characters who are different and have different life goals. It's wonderful. Mm-hmm. Great. Well, I think that is it for listener mail this time. Um, so now we're going to wrap up. You can find us and talk to us if you have listener mail to send us on Twitter at um, TortleRecall. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Tortle Recall on Tumblr. Um, you can find us on our website, which is TortleRecall.com. TortleRecall at gmail.com. Is, yeah, so TortleRecall.com is our website. Our email address is TortleRecall at gmail.com. Um, you can find our podcast on itunes and we would love it if you reviewed us on that or rated us that would make us super happy thank you to everybody who's done that um we'd like to thank our music which is greensleeves by zetta 
and we'd like to thank a whole bunch of people who um who talked to us or interacted with us on Twitter. Wait, um, okay, I guess before you do that, I should also mention again that oh, yeah. um we presumably by the time this episode is out have a Patreon, patreon.com slash recall. Um again not, you know, no pressure to donate, but if you would like to show your appreciation in the form of money, you know, that is an <laughs> option. And also we're uh, putting up some, some exciting bonus content. There's going to be some, basically more of the show, I guess, and then also some other fun stuff in the future. So, uh, yeah, keep an eye out for that. Maybe a cooking show. Who knows? <laughs> <laughs> Maybe. There's, yeah, there's going to be some good stuff, I think. It's going to be really fun to make. Um, so, anyway, let's also thank some people on Twitter. Um, the people are, wow, I said that really badly. I'd like to thank some people who interacted with us on Twitter, and they are Ayla Kramer, KK Bracken, Non-Binosaur, Writing Rissa, My Naminar, Amy M. Jock, Finnegan, Heliological, Catherine Nzer, Indigo Han, Aurora Borealis, Moslam, Kemenuel, Ziggy T. Schultz, Queen Blur Blarb, Marble Tross, and Jocelyn Converse. And again, like we said last week, um, there are some people who've talked to us on various social medias who have swears in their names. We try to not say swears on this show, so if you did talk to us, know that we love you, but we cannot say your name. So also anonymous, but, anonymous, but anonymous. But we do love you and appreciate you very much. <laughs> Thank you. So thanks to everybody so much. It really means a lot to us. It's super cool to hear from you guys. Yeah. Um, so I think that's it. Um, I thought of a really good song about Dane yesterday, which has yes. two lines. So. <laughs> okay, please. It's about this book. It's Dane is back, back with a pack of wolves. <laughs> that's all. Fantastic, Kelly. Thank you. Thank you so much. Okay, let's, let's end this. <laughs> I'm embarrassed. <laughs> Who wants to sign off? Now everyone said Still. it, right? So we can't just bully <laughs> someone into. Um. Um. God damn it. <laughs> I'm impressed that the lag didn't make that impossible yeah. to interpret. So for the listener, we just played nose goes over our video call. So to be fair, I have one of like the thing where you can only see it. it's like the thumbnails aren't showing your video, so I actually had to... anyway, it doesn't oh. matter. Oh, no. See you later, tortellini. <laughs> <Yay>. <laughs>